Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. In this season three, we are looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And today, I want to talk about storms on the lake. You know, storms will come in quick on the Sea of Galilee because the Sea of Galilee sits in a bowl. It's the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth, which means that the mountains surround it. It's literally just down in a hole, and the wind will get in there, especially in the evening, and whip around, and storms can come up really quick. In the Gospel of Mark, there are two of these. There's a storm in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus is asleep in the boat, and he wakes up, and he stills the storm with just a word revealing his authority. And then two chapters later, in chapter 6, there's a storm that'll teach a new lesson. I'm going to read it to you. It's the, it's the famous story of walking on the water, but the way that Mark remembers it is a little different than the way it's remembered in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 14 has got Peter also attempting to walk on the water as well, and there's a lesson for Peter, but it's omitted in Mark's Gospel, and I like that it's told this way because we don't miss the more important point. So I'll read it to you. We'll see if we can't see this in a new way. Mark chapter 6, beginning with the 45th verse. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after saying farewell to them, he went up to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came toward them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Well, right away a few details jump out. We're told in verse 45, the first verse that I read to you, immediately he made his disciples uh, get into the boat and go ahead on the other side to Bethsaida. He made his disciples get into the boat. The word is very specific here, and it really means forced. He forced them to. It's used again and later in the Bible to describe Paul's confinement by the authorities in Acts chapter 28. So the disciples have no choice. They're forced to get into the boat. They're not asked to get into the boat. They're not, it's not suggested they get into the boat, but rather they are forced to leave. So it leaves us with a question. Why? What's going on? Well, a clue is found in what happens before. And as I like to say, we can miss a lot of Bible stuff when we chop it up into little bits. But in the larger story, what happens right before this scene is that Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. And it's possible that of all the miracles, this one could be misused by the crowd in episode seven of this of this podcast series in season three, we talk about something called the Messianic Secret, where Jesus can't let anyone know who he is or what he's about. They're all waiting for a Messiah or a leader, the Jewish idea of a leader, in the end times to kick the Romans out of Judea. They want the Romans gone. 
but they can't they can't see that Jesus didn't come to do that. You, they can imagine a general, if you will, who could feed an army with just a few crumbs and a few fish. And Jesus is not about that. So he forces them to leave. Jesus wants them out of there before they can be misused. So then we're told that he went up to the mountain to pray. Now, as I mentioned, the Sea of Galilee sits in a bowl so that the banks are mountains. The Sermon on the Mount is actually a sermon on the bank of the lake. And from these banks, you can see all the way across. The Sea of Galilee is about seven miles across at its widest point and 11 miles long. And from a high place, you can see pretty much everything. And it's easy to do. And right here in the dead of this night, he can see trouble on the water. Because in verse 48, they were straining at oars against an adverse wind. I, too, know something about this. For years, I've had a summer church in Maine, and about 10 years ago, I became an amateur oarsman. I have, I have a row for a hobby. I have a little boat at Lake Purdy, just south of Birmingham, where I'll try to row a few days a week. It's a single skull, and it works just like the rowboat that Jesus and his friends would have used as they fished on the lake. Uh, what happens with with an oar with an oar type boat is as long as your oars touch the water, you in effect become a trimaran. But like the boat that Jesus and his friends rode in, and like the boat that I will row uh, just south of Birmingham, you must not have any wind or very little wind, or you're not going to have any fun at all. Wind causes waves, of course, but also with wind, you become in effect a sail, and you get blown where you don't want to go. The physics are really simple. It's just it's just hard to do. And I have my own story, and it was terrifying. I, I'd been sculling just a few years, and I was on vacation in Maine off the shore about a half a mile from a boathouse where we keep our boats, and a cold front came through. I saw the ripples of the waves at first, and the, and the cool breeze felt nice. It had been a hot day, but suddenly the, there were waves everywhere, and they were crashing over the bow of the boat, and I, too, was straining against an adverse wind. It took about an hour to reach shore in something that would have ordinarily taken 10 minutes, and I remember when I reached the boathouse, I was exhausted. I thought about Jesus and his disciples. I thought about these storms even out there, and I sure was praying. But when I got back to the beach, finally, the boathouse manager, who was holding binoculars, said, I always had you, Rich. I always had you. I would come get you if you needed me. I would have come out there if you were in any kind of trouble. And I thought about God's love for me in that moment, too, because sometimes when we're in great terror, God's always got us. He's always watching and always reminding us that it's going to be okay. Well, here's what happened. We're told, if you, if you go to the next verse of this story, the, the, the verse uh, 53, it says, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. That wasn't in the story that I just read you, but what it does is it tells you that they went backwards. They actually went about three miles backwards away from Bethsaida. They were going in the wrong direction, and Jesus is watching the whole thing, and he heads down, and then here comes the miracle, right? He walks in the water to the, and, and intends to pass them by. Now, there are a couple points that are going to help here when we talk about this miracle. First of all, Jesus did not perform any miracles to prove his existence. That's not, he didn't perform tricks so that people would believe who he is. And I think that there's a development in faith for all of us when we say our prayers. We want God to do something for us so that we believe that God is real. Uh, everybody will hit a wall at some point 
a wall of silence when it comes to our prayers or perhaps a prayer is not answered in the way that we wanted it to. And we need to remember who we are and who God is. And there may be something beyond the horizon that we can't see. Well, anyway, Jesus walking on the water was not, was not intended to show them that he was God. But there's a, more, there's a more important point to the story, and it was probably more dramatic than we can even imagine. First of all, let's remember, this is not flat water. The reason why they thought he was a ghost is because they're dying out there. If they saw Jesus on the water, they probably worried that they were about to become ghosts as well. He's hopping over waves and caps and slapping down water. And so in this, in this, this tale, we have two insights in the story, one from Jesus and one from the disciples. And here's Jesus' perspective. He's walking on the water to save them. He's also walking on the water to reenact scripture to reveal who he is. On page one of our Bibles, Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, we're told that the wind of God swept over the face of the waters. That wind of God is called ruach. It's God's breath. And the word swept over the face is actually a word that means brood, like an eagle caring for her young. Jesus is doing what God has always done. He's saving them over the darkness of the water. But there is another story that they would have known that we can recall, remembering that God will do something once, God will do it again. And this one is from Exodus. It's Exodus chapter 33. And remember that detail. Jesus walked on the water to them, intending to pass them by. Now, in Exodus chapter 33, basically, I'll recap the story before I read the verse to you. It works like this. God gives Moses the law. But while he's up on the mountain and he's up there a little too long, God's people, they fall back. They forget. They hedge their bets. They make a golden calf and they have a party. And I like to remind people that the golden calf of the, of the Old Testament was basically a rain god. It was a way to hedge their bets. It was a way to ensure that, that they wouldn't die out there in the desert. Of course, God asked them to trust in God alone and they forgot. And Moses was so angry. He broke those tablets of the law. But here in Exodus chapter 33, Moses asked for a second chance, and here's what happens. The Lord says to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you've asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This is to give him another tablet of the law. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Here, God passes by Moses, just as Jesus intended to pass by the disciples. But there's still more connections. Moses asked to see God's glory, but God reveals God's goodness, which is God's ability to bestow grace. The same story happens again and again and again. God's people are deeply flawed, just as the disciples are deeply flawed. But God works with people. God works with us graciously. And we're told that while Moses was in the, on the rock, God puts him into the cleft of a rock and he covers him with his hand. Now, in the Old Testament story, this is a specific word. It refers to the palm of the hand, the tender part of the hand. God is gentle and brooding 
and loving. And I think about our own Christian iconography with nail prints in the hand. And as I like to say at St. Luke's, sometimes in the darkest of our storms, in the darkest of our nights, we will find that the hand holding ours has a nail print within it. Here, Jesus is doing what God has always done, moving over the face of the water, brooding, protecting, just like he always did in the beginning. And here in the waves, the disciples can see it again. If they have eyes to see it, Jesus is the Lord. Well, that's coming from the perspective of Jesus in this story. He intended to pass them by, but there is another perspective. That's of the disciples. They're simply scared to death. Remember what we know about oars now and waves and wind and they're bowing backwards and the waves are crashing over the boat and they think they're going to die and Jesus is a ghost. Well, Jesus reminds them, don't be afraid. Take heart. It is I. Now, this too would be a familiar saying. This would be something that they would would know, something that would resonate, something that would remind them that it would all be okay, that God was with them. I like to say that in the Galilee, they had almost 100% literacy rates, which means that they all read the stories of the Bible and they all prayed with the stories of the Bible and they knew the stories of the Bible better than we do. And I is a specific designation for the Lord. Remember Moses asked God's name in the, at the scene of the burning bush and God says, I am who I am is my name. I am is my name. And then later, during a time of the exile, which is a very, very important backstory for God's people, which simply means that some 600 years before Jesus' birth, they lost their temple, they lost their home, they thought they lost everything, and way out in exile in Babylon, far, far away, thinking they would never return again, God would speak to them. God spoke to them through prophets, and God would speak to the prophet Isaiah and would say these things. I'm going to read two, two or three verses to you. This is Isaiah 41, 4 goes like this. Who has performed and done these things, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am first, and I will be with the last. I, the Lord, am first. I is God's name. He also says it again, this word of comfort to the exiles in Babylon. This is Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, so that you may know me and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any God after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. You see, I is God's name, and God is with them way out there. Still, we're told at the end of the story, their hearts were hardened. And that's a theme in Mark. Uh, It's one thing to be astounded by Jesus. It's another thing to see his goodness and to follow just like Moses, it's the story that happens again and again. We're imperfect people, but God will use us anyway. In, in my seminary days, years ago, I heard a sermon from a preacher who said that he was walking on the beach somewhere in the mid-Atlantic where they had these huge sea turtles that get up on the sand and they get turned around and they go into the dunes. And if they, if they aren't returned to the water, they'll die. So these teenagers ride up and down the beach in four-wheelers with chains, and they'll, they'll put their chain around the flipper of one of these giant beasts, and they'll drag them out to the water. And so this preacher's walking on the beach, and he sees the sea turtle being dragged uh, on the shell, squalling and squawking and making all kinds of noise, and dragging, dragging the sea turtle back into the surf, which caused the preacher to muse. Sometimes it's hard to tell if you're being saved or you're being killed. That's exactly what's happening here. 
God is doing what God is always doing to them, saving them, even though it may be frightening, with them in the storm, brooding over creation, cutting through the fear, and showing them that God is near and God is real. Well, friends, I hope that we've given you a new insight on an old story, something from our Sunday school days. It's so much more deep and rich than we even imagine when we realize that if God did something once, God will do it again. Just remember, to be alive means to be in a crisis or headed out of a crisis or going into a crisis. To be alive means to be in a storm. But God is there and God will save. Thanks, everybody.